if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and, and turn to Ecclesiastes 9. A couple of things as we dive into this. For the last eight weeks, we've been walking through one of the most baffling books of the entire Bible. Um, it's a book of the Bible that has been repeatedly in the history of the church, ignored. It's been misinterpreted. It's been a book that's caused tons of confusion. And for the last eight weeks, I think what we found is that God, the Holy Spirit, really knew what he was doing when he inspired this book and included it in the Bible. One of the things that's been so beautiful about studying Ecclesiastes for my own soul is that this is a book that's really honest. In fact, sometimes it's painfully honest about the real human condition. This is a book that sort of diagnoses the questions and the yearnings that human beings carry and all the ridiculous things that we do with those desires. This is a book that's really accurate about this tension that we feel It's this tension we carry that sometimes we're not aware of because we try to stay busy and not look at it. It's the tension between two radically different parts of our humanity, and here they are. The first part of our humanity is that we were made for earth, and we have things in common with animals. Like, you have a body. Right now in this moment, you're probably starting to dream a little bit about brunch if you're like me, right? Uh, You have appetites. You need food, You need shelter. Human beings are creatures of desire. We're creatures with biology. We're creatures that were made to inhabit this planet and enjoy this planet. We're folks that get thirsty and we're folks that get hungry. And here's the reality. Like animals, our bodies came from dust and our bodies are gonna return to dust. So human beings, and especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, this teacher, this wise person, human beings are often prone to just standing in the face of time and death and chaos and injustice, feeling really helpless and really small and having no idea what to do. Now, that's not all of humanity though, because in addition to being made for earth and having things in common with animals, we were made for God and we're made in the image of God. We were made for God and we were made in the image of God, which means just as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, you have eternity written in your heart. You have this longing for transcendence. And that word transcendence is a bit of a weird one. It's one that gets thrown around a little bit and not defined. Uh, The idea of transcendence is that you want something that that is above or beyond the normal human experience. You want something that's exceptional. You want something that's eternal. You want a love that's gonna last. And so the tension or or the conflict of being a human being, if we could be so bold, the tension is on one hand, you're this biological being that can touch and taste and smell and feel. And you live in a material world where there's all kinds of delights and options for trying to find meaning and satisfaction. And you're the spiritual being that was created to know, to know God, to love God, and to actually live forever. And in the midst of that tension, it's really confusing figuring out how do you navigate life when you have this longing for eternity and all you're really aware of is that you gotta get up tomorrow morning and punch in and punch out and try to carve out an existence that kind of makes sense. This is why we said in the beginning that human beings in a lot of ways are created for tragedy more than we are for triumph. 
Like there's a conflict in us. There's a struggle inside of us. And what Ecclesiastes does that I think is so helpful is Ecclesiastes reminds us that those desires and longings that we point in all kinds of crazy directions, like towards hedonism or towards honor or towards career or towards religion or towards morality, those deep longings, those deep desires, those transcendent yearnings that we point in all kinds of directions are actually yearnings and desires that can never fully be satisfied under the sun. So today in our journey through Ecclesiastes, what we get to talk about is perhaps one of the most helpful weeks out of the entire journey. We get to talk about as these human creatures who have things in common with animals and as these image bearers of God who have yearnings to know and to experience transcendence, how do we carve out an ordinary spirituality where every single day really matters? How do you carve out an ordinary spirituality where you experience food and drink, not as the answer to your deepest yearnings, but as a place you meet with God to be changed by him in the moments. I want to start with just three parts of the journey. Like in the beginning, here's what we experienced in creation. Like God creates everything out of nothing and he makes human beings, these biological and spiritual creatures at the same time. And he puts us in a garden. And here's what's so fascinating about that garden. It was a garden that was enchanted with God himself. There was no temple in that garden. There was no structure where God said, if you really want to meet with me or experience the holy, if you want to taste transcendence, if you want a sense of what's eternal, you got to leave the garden and all the ordinary and you got to go do this pilgrimage to this holy place over there where there's this beautiful building with a dome. That's where the holy stuff is. What we see in the beginning is that God actually enchants the garden with his very presence. And here's what's so crazy. Adam and Eve do all kinds of really ordinary things like eating and drinking and making love and having conversation and working jobs and learning what it is to tend the garden and care for creation. But all of those ordinary things are infused with the presence and the pleasure of God. So they wake up in the morning and they have chores to do and jobs to do. But as they do their chores and jobs, they're breathing in the very presence and nearness of the living God. And they're breathing out worship and praise. They're eating. They're preparing meals. They're embracing each other. They're having conversation. But here's what you see. It's not this disenchanted world that we're so used to where we're wondering, is there more? Is there meaning? Is there depth? Is there ultimate beauty? They're just completely inundated with the ordinary and the spectacular being married together every single day. Now, something crazy and tragic happens, which is kind of hard to imagine why they would do this until we actually look at our own hearts something tragic happens in the midst of that everyday ordinary transcendence or ordinary spirituality. In the midst of all that, there's this really tragic moment where they look at all the things that God made for them to enjoy, like food and work and sex and family. 
And they, in this moment, make this tragic exchange where they say, in essence, we don't really want you, we want all your stuff. We want all your stuff. Here's what it would be like. It would be like having a super rich friend and that super rich friend invites you over for a house party. And that rich friend is like, I love you. You are amazing. We are going to hang out. It is going to be a blast. I bought jet skis for us to ride, right? This is going to be the most epic party. We're going to ride jet skis, right? I made helium filled balloons that say friendship on them. And we are going to have a friendship party, you and me. We're going to sit by the pool. And not only are we going to have little drinks with umbrellas, which are going to be awesome. We are going to talk deeply and share life because what is mine is yours. And you're like, this is pretty awesome. Like this person really loves me and wants to be with me. And he has jet skis, right? This is great. I wanted a friend with jet skis. And then you even walk to the refrigerator and you open it up. And it's like all the things that you, that you dream of being able to buy that you can't afford. And you're like, oh my gosh, there are people that actually do a whole week shopping at Whole Foods. That is actually a possibility for someone out there. It's not a possibility for me, but there are people that do their grocery shopping there. It's like 10 grand a week for a family of one. <laughs> and, and you're like, this is pretty awesome. And you start hanging out with your rich friend and you start to realize your, your rich friend is really generous and really loves you and really wants to be with you. And then all of a sudden you get this idea. You know, it'd be awesome not sharing the jet skis. And you're like, hey, here's a little proposal how about you get the heck out of your house and leave me alone so I can consume all your stuff and not have you in the midst of this party? Now, that's just a tiny little silly, ridiculous, trite example of the terrifying reality of what we did. God was like, I want to bless you. I want to bless you with food. I want to bless you with drink. I want to bless you with sexuality. I want to bless you with sunsets. And I want to bless you with the ultimate gift. And that's that all of these little G gifts point to the capital G gift, which is me. You get me in the midst of all this. I love you. I want to be with you. And I'm going to enjoy you for all time. And here's what I want from you. I just want you to find your ultimate satisfaction in me and trust me that my will for you is good. And we were like, nah. (laughs) In that moment, here's what happened. Sin entered in and sin brings separation from God. It's not that God abandoned the world. It's that we lost the capacity to commune with him, to hear him, to know him and to feel him. Our hearts grew cold to him. And so here's what we were left with. We were left with a God-haunted world. We were left with all those yearnings for transcendence, for eternity, for satisfaction, for identity, but we didn't have the capacity or the ability to know him and love him because our hearts had grown dead and cold due to sin. So here's what we have. Post the garden east of Eden, here's what it is to be a human being. It's to have this animal part of you. And I don't necessarily mean that in just a base way. I mean, there's a biological part of you that touches and tastes and smells and needs to eat and has desires and thirsts and hungers. And there's this 
eternal image-bearing part of you that can only find its ultimate satisfaction in God, but you can't see God and you can't find God and you can't hear God and you're dead to God and therefore what are we left with? We're left with aiming all of our ultimate desires and needs on ordinary stuff that can't satisfy us. So what's the book of Ecclesiastes about? It's about the good life experiment. How do you fill up what Blaise Pascal called the infinite abyss of your soul? Is it in money? Is it sex? Is it pleasure? Is it religion? Is it leaving a legacy? Is it being a mom? Is it being a dad? Is it in working really hard? Is it, is it in being rich? What happens in Ecclesiastes is at every turn, here's his conclusion. He's like, no, that didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. What happens in chapter nine that's really refreshing and really encouraging is he gives us a glimpse. He gives us a glimpse into restored ordinary spirituality. He gives us a glimpse into what you were actually created to enjoy, which is eating and drinking and relationship and work and family and geography, like your neighborhood and the place that you live and play in the midst of a relationship with the ultimate pleasure of the universe that is God himself. So take your Bible. We're going to look at this and talk about what would ordinary, everyday spirituality look like where ordinary places and ordinary things become sanctified and beautiful and infused with the presence of God. Ecclesiastes 9, starting in verse 7, he says this, go, eat your bread with joy, And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Okay, this is crazy because it feels kind of like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth because he's told us that all of these things ultimately result in meaninglessness, like ultimately work and family and sex and money and all the things that he kind of mentions here, ultimately, if you aim your ultimate meaning at those things, you're gonna be really frustrated and really disappointed and really cynical. And yet at the same time, he's saying, but these things are really good and they're really beautiful. They're really rich and they're really important. Here's what I think he's pointing to. And I I don't know that he had all of this fleshed out, but I think what the spirit of God is doing in this writing that's really refreshing and beautiful is this. I think it's that ordinary gifts ordinary everyday goods like celebration and feasting and marriage and work, ordinary everyday gifts become deeply spiritual and deeply meaningful when we stop asking them for our meaning. Work becomes holy when work is just work and a place that you glorify and meet with the living God. Marriage becomes beautiful when you stop loading all the freight of every unmet dream and desire on your spouse. Parenting becomes beautiful and refreshing and rewarding when you're not asking your children to name you and be the source of your identity. To actually be reconnected with the living God through the work of Jesus 
infuses the world with the intended enchantment of God's presence that you were made to enjoy. It makes regular, everyday stuff become holy, rich, and beautiful. So through the work of Jesus, here's the reality. Let me list this stuff. Let's talk about food and drink. If the hole in your soul is aimed towards food and drink to either medicate you away from your sense of despair or satisfy your deepest longings, what happens? Well, you either become a glutton or a drunkard, correct? But what happens if your faith is in Jesus and the invitation of Christ is to find your identity in his finished work, your satisfaction in his finished work? You're actually called in Jesus to rest in the fact that he's atoned for all your sins and to take your burdens and your delights to God in prayer, who you can now approach through Jesus. What happens with food and drink in that moment? Well, track with me. Food and drink is no longer just human necessities or places that you try to medicate your sadness away. Through the work of Jesus, here's what happens. Food and drink become a sacred place of receiving the provision that your father provides for you. Food and drink become a sacred place to enjoy relationship. Food and drink become a place where God satisfies not just your soul, but your body with his goodness. I remember in my 20s being a Christian in the Bible Belt and just being so epically sick of kind of dead consumer Christianity and having a really bad attitude about it. And I remember thinking that Um, I was way more spiritual than all those Christians that always thank God for their meals. I remember thinking like, that's just so lame to just do that as a tradition. It's so religious. You always thank God for your meals and bow your heads. I'm so cool. I don't need your law. (laughs) Like, here's what's funny, man. The older I get, the more I'm realizing that in the ordinary grace of food and drink, and I'm not just talking about the epic meals, right? Like those... Those are amazing, those moments where it's the really, the really incredible, lavish grace of God that you get to feast with friends. Those memories, those meals you remember for like 20 years, those are beautiful, but I'm talking about just those regular meals, man, like trying to get something in your baby's belly as they're heading out the door to school. I'm talking about being able to open up a sandwich between appointments with a couple of friends that you work with and eating it in the midst of a hectic day. What happens in the grace of Jesus, track with me, is that those moments become infused with the presence of God when you realize, oh, you know what? It's a father who's meeting my needs and providing for me and caring for me like he cares for all creation. And I actually can open my hands up and receive with gratitude the gift that he just gave me. It's normal, everyday spirituality in food and drink. Um, This last week, we had friends in from South Africa and we got to do a celebration at my house. It was um, our leadership community. It was our elders and wives and friends from out of town. And, And it was so beautiful to be able to lift up a glass and just say, hey, this whole night, we're feasting in the presence of the living God who has provided for our needs and he's actually here in the middle of every conversation we're about to have. And you know what happened? It felt like what I imagined the garden might have felt like. It was enchanted with the very presence of God. We didn't just talk about sports or hunting or hobby. Like, 
There were people that were opening up their hearts and their souls in celebration and people that were opening up their hearts and souls in mourning and in the midst of all of it, prayer wasn't some dead ritualistic thing you have to do. Prayer was the natural response of being in the presence of a God who loves us and who's covered our sins through the cross. Ordinary spirituality includes food and drink. It also includes, according to him, celebration He says, let your garments be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, this is a little baffling for me because I did a little research into why are the garments white? What's the deal with the oil? That seems weird. I don't get that culturally. Um, In the ancient Near East, white was the color of celebration. So in, in essence, it's like he's saying, don't forget to dry clean your tuxedo and your best evening gown don't forget to dry clean them and put them on. Don't forget to party. Don't forget to celebrate. White was the color that you would wear to a wedding. White was the color that you would wear to a feast. It's the color of joy. It's the color of partying. And oil on the head, that's what you would do before going to a party, celebration, or feast to make sure that your skin doesn't get dry because of the Middle Eastern climate and to make sure that in a culture with no air conditioning, um, pre-man-made, mass-produced deodorant, that you smelled nice at the party. So here's what he's saying. He's like, Yeah, man, Um, it's true that I already mentioned to you guys that the fool is in the house of celebration and the wise person's in the house of mourning. Remember, he said that. It's true, it's true that you need to sit in lamentation and feel the weight of just how messed up the world is. That's true. But also make sure that you keep your tuxedo pressed. Make sure that you're ready to put your evening gown on. Make sure that you put on your perfume because Life is to be celebrated. Now, track with me. Like, if Ecclesiastes was all we had, we'd have to say to the teacher, you're kind of crazy. You're kind of crazy because I don't know how to reconcile wisdom is found in going to the funeral, not going to the wedding, because he kind of mentions that. I don't know how to reconcile that with you telling me that I need to break out my best gear and be ready to party because you just kind of walk through how jacked up and sucky the whole world is for like nine chapters, So tell me, how am I supposed to celebrate and party when chance happens to everybody, injustice is rampant, and as you said, teacher, death's coming for all of us, so congratulations. Well, here's what's beautiful. Again, it's pointing to fulfillment beyond this. Here's what Jesus Christ does. In his life, death, and resurrection, he actually grants you by grace white garments, not just of purity, but white garments of gratitude and celebration that don't guarantee easy avoidance of life's sufferings and disquiets. But in the midst of all of life's sufferings and disquiets, here's what you can bank on in Jesus. All of the promises of God are yes to you. If your faith is in Jesus today, that doesn't mean that you'll never get cancer. It doesn't mean that your marriage won't go through a really hard time. It doesn't mean that the economy won't take a downturn and that you won't get laid off if you're a Christian. But if you're a follower of Jesus, the white garments that Jesus has bought for you and given to you as a gift are garments of celebration in which even in the worst moments of this life, here's what you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Father's yes is towards you through Jesus. 
There is no punishment left for you because of Jesus. There is no wrath coming towards you because of Jesus. And that means even through the midst of tears, even when your voice is really cracking and weak because of suffering, you can actually break out that evening gown and that tuxedo metaphorically, and you can put them on as a follower of Jesus because you have so much to celebrate that can never be taken away from you. Death, war, sin, betrayal, loss, divorce. These are things that if you're in Jesus can never snatch you out of the Father's hand and can never take you away from the love of God. So he says, ordinary spirituality, what does it look like? Well, it looks like food and drink in the presence of God. It looks like celebration and feasting in the presence of God. It also looks like love and marriage in the presence of God. Here's what he writes in Ecclesiastes. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Hey, if I could be so bold and honest as to say the first two years of me and Nancy's marriage was a total train wreck, total train wreck. And it really caught us both off guard because we had loved each other a really long time. Um, we, we had started dating on and off literally in middle school and knew I wanted to marry her. Just I've never been as, as drawn to or compelled by another human being as I am. Her um, was completely, completely overjoyed. She said yes to me when I asked for her hand. And then what started to happen was all of the freight that I was asking her to pull for my soul started catching up with her and it started catching up with me. Here's what I mean. Here's all I wanted her to be and do for me. All I wanted her to be and do for me was my source of ultimate comfort. I just wanted her to be my well of joy So whenever in my sadness and anxiety and fear, um, whenever I felt those things, I could come to her and just drink deeply of Nancy as my unending eternal well of joy. No pressure, but just be my source of unending eternal joy. I wanted her to be my identity. So reflect back to me who I am. Tell me who I am because I'm 20 and I'm terrified of this world and I'm terrified of life and, and I feel a lot of shame and I feel a lot of fear. Who am I? All I wanted her to do was basically just carry the weight of the biggest, most eternal questions that human beings ask. Who am I? Why am I here? Where is joy? What is a beautiful life? All I want you to do is just answer all that for me completely and repeatedly all the time. Now, what happened? Well, she got crushed under the weight of that. And I got crushed under the weight of that. What is he saying here? He's saying, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. How is that even possible? Well, in our culture, here's what we say. Self-actualization comes from romantic love. So the good life in our culture, where's that found? Well, it's found in finding the one. How do you know they're the one? Well, they satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, always and forever. (laughs) Right? That's how you know. That's how you know, man. That's all, all I need you to do is just satisfy the deepest longings of my soul always and forever. Sign on the dotted line. And, and not only that, but it's like, don't just be my companion and my friend and my lover. Make sure that as my lover, you stay like the epitome of my um, culturally shaped 
version of what is beautiful. So you better not get stretch marks after you have kids. You better not put on weight. Gravity better never catch up with you. It's true. The problem with that, man, is that what we're doing is we're actually, we're actually trying to find a person to meet needs and to fulfill longings that no person can meet and fulfill. And here's what's so crazy about Jesus. Jesus says in the book of Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here's what's so breathtaking about the gospel. When you actually receive the love of God that's yours in Christ, you start to be invited into an ongoing life of figuring out the answers to those biggest questions that no spouse can ever answer. And what starts to happen is a liberation where you can enjoy and love your spouse because you no longer need them to be God. You no longer have to compare them to everybody else. You no longer have to be looking for the grass being greener elsewhere because covenant marriage is about God demonstrating his love and pouring out his love on you in the midst of covenant. And that means marriage is about your holiness more than it's about your happiness. Ordinary everyday spirituality What's he saying? Well, in Jesus, it's things like the way we eat and drink in the presence of God, like we were created to in the beginning. It's the way that we celebrate in the presence of God, the way we were created to in the beginning. That life for a Christian on good days and bad days is breathing in grace and breathing out thanksgiving. That marriage and family Marriage and family is about ordinary spirituality where you meet with God and you depend on God and you repent to God because marriage is gonna bring out all kinds of sin. And then lastly, I love this. Ordinary spirituality is about work and presence. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, um, this has been preached a lot of times as like a vocation verse, and it, and it is, right? Whatever your hand finds to do includes your J-O-B. It also includes your career. But I think that it, what he's saying is something really bigger than that. I think what he's saying is this. Ordinary spirituality is about being fully present with God and the people and the place that you're with in any given moment. What is whatever your hands find to do, include. Include everything. Here's what he's saying. Don't, don't think that spirituality is always dreaming and fantasizing about being somewhere else and with somewhere else. Healthy spirituality is about giving people the gift of presence as you enjoy the presence of God. Here's what he's saying. When it's time to work, Know that Jesus is with you and in you and being glorified and honored as you work as an act of worship, even if it's not your dream job. When you wake up tomorrow to be a barista or you wake up tomorrow to hang um, duct work for a new building in our city or you wake up tomorrow to be a teacher or you wake up tomorrow to be a stay-at-home mom, fill in the blank, whatever your job is, being fully present and doing that job with heart and passion is as spiritual as what we're gonna do today at the end of this service as we receive a benediction. It's as spiritual. 
because Jesus is with you in that moment and he's being honored through your labor in that moment. And what he's asking you to do is be present in that moment. And then when it's time to go home, instead of when you're at work, dreaming about being home, and then when you're at home, you dream about being at work. Is that not our condition? Here's what he's saying. Whatever your hand finds to do means when it's time to walk through the doors and engage your family, engage your children, engage your neighbors, don't be fantasizing about all the stuff that was left undone from that day. Actually be present because God is present in that moment. God is with you in that place. I think it's just so crazy with all four of those categories. You've got You've got the category of food and drink. You've got the category of celebration. You've got the category of love and marriage. You've got the category of work and being present. I think it's so crazy in all of those different categories that we live in a moment where we're longing for the big and the sexy and the marketable when it comes to all that. Here's what I mean, like flipping social media, like, we're constantly, we're constantly crafting an image of bigger and better and more famous to try to get affirmed from people that don't give a rip about us. They don't care about you. They don't love you. They don't know you. They're not really your friends. They're not really your friends. Your friends are people that actually show up in your life when you're hurting. They're not your friends. And we live in this crazy moment where everything needs to be bigger and sexier and shinier and more flashy. And the crazy thing is, the crazy thing is, Paul tells the Thessalonians to make it their ambition to lead quiet lives. Quiet lives. And then he lists things like quiet lives of love for God, for neighbor, for family, for brother, for sister and to work with your hands, to live quiet lives of vocation, knowing that your job is as spiritual as your worship gathering. And we live in this moment where everything in our culture is warring against that and fighting against that. So let let me say a couple of things, okay? In closing this, landing the plane, we're gonna pray. In closing this, everyday spirituality is possible because you were far from God and you couldn't get beyond the sun to get to him. So he sent Jesus to come under the sun to get to you. And what's so crazy about that scandal of mercy is that your ongoing ordinary life, regular life, like changing diapers life, like trying to figure out the awkward first date life, ordinary, regular, average life that we kind of want to speed up so the important stuff happens becomes the, it becomes the sanctuary where we get to learn to hear the voice and enjoy the presence of the living God. Because if your faith is in Jesus, he's with you in those moments. He's with you. Tomorrow morning is a holy day. And not because it's bigger and flashier and sexier and faster than today. Tomorrow morning is a holy day because the living God has prepared it for you to be present with him and present with the people that he's placed you in relationship with. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, hey, can I just say something? It's a holy thing to love Jesus and work 60 years 
Get calluses put on your hands by waking up early every morning, going to a job that's not the flashy job, the sexy job, but it's the job. It's the job you've been given to honor God and to put food on the table. That's holy. That's a spiritual thing. Moms, in this, in this blogger climate where it's like, like the epitome of a Christian woman is like, you gotta have like 250,000 Facebook followers and you gotta have your own fashion line and you gotta have like a show on HGTV and you gotta be super cute while you do all that stuff. Can I just say, real everyday spirituality is realizing it's profoundly holy when you change that diaper to the glory of God. God's with you in that moment. Jesus makes it possible for us to go back to the created intended design of God that we would live in a world where the average and ordinary is enchanted with the transcendent. The average and ordinary isn't, it's enchanted with the presence of God. Work and play in every arena of your life. If, if you're following, Jesus is enchanted with the living God.